Okay, the title for this lesson is Jethro's Counsel and Jehovah's Covenant. And we're going to try to cover all of chapter 18 and 19, not the whole chapter, but up through verse 10. All right, in the battle with Amalek, remember we looked at that last time, that was in the first half of Exodus chapter 17, we learned of Moses' physical weariness. Remember how old is the man? How old is he? He's 80 years old, right? He's 80 years old. And he grew weary, and so he needed Aaron and her to come to his aid. First of all, they provided a stone for him to sit on, and then, uh, and that's why, of course, he was interceding on a hilltop overlooking the battle that was going on below. Joshua was, was the captain of the Israelite army fighting the Amalekites, and Moses was up on the hilltop holding up his arms with what in his hands? The rod of God, the sta- his staff. And that was picturing him interceding and praying and praising God and interceding on behalf of his people that they would win the battle. But after a while, his arms grew heavy, as would any of ours, especially if we're 80 years old, grow heavy, and Aaron and Hur came to uphold his arms so he could keep them up in the air. His upraised hands served to remind Joshua and his warriors that they were fighting under the banner of Yahweh. Jehovah Nisi, that was a new name that we were given uh, for God in chapter 17, verse 15. Well, now, as we come to Exodus chapter 18, we learn more information about the weariness of old Moses, the man, of course, who God had chosen not only to deliver Israel from Egypt, but also to shepherd Israel on her journey to the promised land of Canaan, tending to two million people. And what kind of people were they? Yes, they they were uh, kind of impatient. They were very much mumblers and complainers. They just were not the easiest group of people to lead. Two million of them, you know, you put two million people together, you're going to have problems. Well, tending to all that was anything but an easy task, particularly in an environment that was deplete of all life's basic necessities. Even bread and water. And now you add to that uh, the added fear of unprovoked enemy attacks. So Moses had a very, very difficult task uh, that he was trying to perform. Lots of aspects of it, multifaceted aspects of leadership. And he was trying to handle all of them himself. And that, my dear friends, is a sure formula for what we call burnout for a pastor or anyone in Christian ministry to try to do everything himself is a formula for burnout. Moses needed God's help or he was going to grow weary in well-doing. Do a lot of ministers grow weary in well-doing? And I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about even if you lead a Sunday school class or a Bible study or whatever it is, you grow weary. You can grow weary in well-doing. And Moses certainly would have long before the end of this 40-year journey, if something hadn't been done. Now, we don't hear Moses asking for help for himself. Whenever he asks for help, it's always for his people. He intercedes on their behalf, but he doesn't ask the Lord for assistance. But nonetheless, God knew that he needed some help. He needed it desperately. So the Lord, as he had provided Moses with help, in the battle with the Amalekites by giving him Joshua and Aaron and Hur. 
we now find that in this next recorded episode in the book of Exodus, the Lord provided for Moses's well-being by bringing him back, and this would be probably providing for him emotionally and socially, he, br- he brings him back his family. He's been separated from his wife and two sons for about a year at this point. It took a long time for Pharaoh to finally let the Israelites go, the ten plagues and all that, and now they've been in the wilderness three months. And so it's been about a year since he's been with his family. So, you know, this whole, this whole wilderness journey is about God's protection and God's provision, isn't it? Well, he provided for the people. Now he's providing for their leader. He's providing for Moses. So he brings him back, his family. That's in verses 1 to 7. And then he refreshes Moses spiritually by the way of the testimony for God that is given to him by his Midianite father-in-law. Jethro. And he is also refreshed spiritually, Moses is, through the time of praise and worship that he not only shares with his father-in-law in the tent, but with all the elders of Israel. They offer sacrifices together and then they sit down and they break bread together. You know, so they're having a wonderful, he's refreshed. He's being refreshed. And that's in verses 8 to 12. Furthermore, the Lord eased Moses's physical and mental burdens by way of the very wise counsel he received from Jethro, his father-in-law. And that's in verses 13 to 27. So this chapter is really all about God's provision in the wilderness for the leader, Moses. uh, Israel spent about a month in Rephidim. That was where she was enjoying the refreshment of the miraculous flow of gushing water that came out of the rock of Horeb after he struck it. I'm surprised she didn't stay there longer because there at least she had plenty of water and and bread, didn't she? You know, manna was coming down every day. So she, she was doing well there. That's also in Rephidim where she experienced her first victory against an external enemy, the Amalekites. Well, while she is still in this location, Moses is rejoined by his wife Zipporah and his two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. Do you all remember Zipporah? Remember? She was, Jethro had how many daughters? Jethro had seven daughters. And the first time anyone ever met Moses was, you know, after he had murdered an Egyptian and he had to leave Egypt and he came uh, all the way to Midian and he saw these girls at the well and they were being bullied by other shepherd and they, they had drawn all the water and then the shepherds pushed them away so they could feed their flocks the water instead of the girls and Moses intervened saved the day he was a big hero you know the handsome hero and back then he was um, 40 and so eventually he married one of Jethro's daughter named Zipporah all right now she was a Gentile the Midianites were considered Gentiles we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit but do you remember why is he separated from his wife now at this point well he had sent her and his two boys back to Midian shortly after the experience of talking to God through the burning bush Moses had met God and had received his commission to return to Egypt after 40 years in Midian go back to Egypt and deliver my people go to pharaoh and tell them god said let my people go and i am sending you to bring them out of egypt well moses reluctantly obeyed 
and went on his way, but he did not get very far. And we read that really strange, weird passage in Exodus chapter 4. I think it was verses 24 to 26. It's really a weird passage of scripture. God had commissioned Moses to deliver his people. And then he sets out to obey and God is going to kill him. God's going to take his life. And you go, what? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Well, why was God going to take his life? What had Moses neglected to do? How could he lead the covenant people if he himself had not obeyed the covenant by doing what to his oldest son? Probably his oldest. He had not. He had failed to circumcise his oldest son, Gershom. I think it was his oldest son. Makes more sense that it was the oldest son, not the younger son. Anyway, and so so Zipporah saved his life. She really did. She saved Moses' life because she intervened and she circumcised the son. And why do you think that Moses then sent them back to Jethro, his father-in-law? Probably because that son was not a little kid. He wasn't eight days old. He was a man and he needed to heal. And so they went back and they've been in Midian with her father ever since. All right, well, having apparently Jethro had heard from travelers and other people, I don't know, even maybe Moses sent some messengers to him. I'm sure he had some correspondence with his family, you know, sending people back and forth to tell them what was going on. But he had heard, this is what we're told in verse 1, all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, Moses' people, And that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro had heard all of that. Probably not the details, but he heard the basics. And therefore, in his mind, Grandpa, he knows it's time for his wife and grandsons to be reunited with their father. So he escorts his daughter and his two grandsons to the Israeli camp. Now we find here that the relationship between Moses and Jethro is a good one. It's very warm. You know, he he goes out and he greets them. He greets him with great honor and respect. And it's obvious that those two are close. How long had they lived together? 40 years they had lived together. So they, these two men knew each other and they respected each other. And so he goes out, respects him, you know, uh, kisses him and all that. And then he invites him back into his tent. And there he personally shares with him all of the momentous workings of the Lord during the time since they had last seen one another. This was a rehearsal for writing the book of Exodus, wasn't it? At least the first 17 chapters. I'm sure he told him everything that had gone on with the 10 plagues in Egypt and how Pharaoh had been so stubborn and wouldn't let them go. And he would have told them about the night of the Passover when they finally were allowed to go and how the Egyptians had given them plenty of things to travel with, you know, their wealth. How they, then Pharaoh had changed his mind and he boxed them in uh, between the mountains and the Red Sea. And then the Lord had opened up the waters, how they miraculously crossed through and then covered all the Egyptians and they drowned. And that was the end of Pharaoh and his army. And he would have gone on to then tell him about how he had provided for them. You know, all the travail. It says he talked about all the travail that they had encountered on their journey. How they got, you know, had no water. and, And the Lord turned bitter water to sweet water. And how he had provided them with manna from heaven. And... And how he had struck the rock and water came out and all those wonderful stories he shared with Jethro. I mean, Jethro probably had known the basics, but now he was getting all the details. 
and probably Moses was sitting there answering any of his questions. But one thing we notice is that Moses truly gave all the glory to the Lord. It says he talked about what the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And uh, he was definitely like Joseph. Remember Joseph? Joseph always was sure to give the glory to God. Moses is the same way. They're both picture types of Jesus. They gave all, Jesus always gave the glory to his father. So he gives all, he doesn't talk about how he did this and did that. He was truly a humble man. And so he tells them about all of this. He takes no credit for any, his part in any of Israel's deliverance. He doesn't take any credit for his leadership skills or anything. And he gives an honest report because he talks not only about the miraculous deliverance, but also the human hardships. It does say he talked about all the travails. You think he included the times when the Israelites murmured about this and about that? <laughs> he probably did. I mean, they knew each other 40 years. He probably told them everything. So in other words, he gave them the good, the bad, and the ugly. Told them the whole, whole thing. Now, as we are reminded in verse 1, Jethro was the priest of Midian. That's an important man in Midian. Not just a priest, he was the priest, so that probably means he was like the high priest of Midian. The Midianites were the descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. So they are not part of Israel because they didn't come from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. So technically, they were considered Gentiles. It's interesting, they came from Abraham, but they're considered Gentiles. By this time in their history, Although they retained knowledge of Yahweh, the true God of Abraham, their ancestor, by this time, however, by and large, the Midianites had turned to the worship of many gods. And that's primarily as a result of their connection with the Moabites. Who were the Moabites? They were de descendants of Lot. Remember after he left Sodom and then he had an incestuous relationship with two of his daughters, which was awful. But as a result, the Moabites came from one of those daughters, a descendant of Lot. Well, Jethro, the priest of Midian, had already learned some of the amazing reports about Israel's exit from Egypt from other people. But now he is filled in on all of the details, and they have to just absolutely be spectacular for him to hear about, you know, the Red Sea opening up and all that. And he hears all this, and his response is one of absolute rejoicing. We are told he rejoices for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel. Verse 9. And notice, just like Moses, he was very careful to give the praise to who? He didn't say, you know, I'm rejoicing for what you have done, Moses. My dear son-in-law, he gives all the glory to the Lord for what he had done. He gives him all the blessing and honor and glory. And then he made a confession. And this is very interesting in verse 11. Jethro says, now I know that Jehovah is greater than all gods, for he hath shown himself great in the thing wherein they, the Egyptians, had dealt proudly against them, the Israelites. Now, this has confused a lot of people. Many commentaries will say that this was absolutely Jethro, the Midianite priest's conversion confession. And here is where he absolutely came to know that Yahweh uh, was the true God. You know, after hearing of all his magnificent power over the many gods and goddesses of Egypt. This was where he had his defining moment and was saved, we would call it. Others say 
that he was still not monotheistic. In other words, that he still did not believe in just one God, that being Yahweh. But that his statement revealed that henceforth he would practice what is called monolatry. But it's M-O-N-O-L-A-T-R-Y. Monolatry. And that is the practice of worshiping one God to the exclusion of all the other gods and goddesses. He still believed that there were other gods and goddesses, but he didn't worship them anymore. He only worshiped the one true God. I can't really be dogmatic. However, I believe that because his confession here, when he says, now I know that God is greater than all gods, because that confession led him to express his face faith by presenting a burnt offering and sacrifices to God in verse 12, after which he sat down to break bread with true believers, Moses and Aaron and the elders, that it would appear that Jethro's assured faith in the God of his ancestor Abraham pictures a kind of first fruits unto the Lord from among the Gentiles. So if I had to choose, I would say that Jethro here represents a Gentile coming to true faith in God. And typologically, this would work because, (laughs) all right, what did we have just a little while ago? Well, we had a picture of the Lord Jesus being smitten, the atonement work of the cross when the rock was struck, and then that, that pictures, you know, the events of the Passover. And then when water gushed out, that was a picture of what? The Holy, the Holy Spirit and the Lord's invitation to come unto him and drink, to receive him. And if you go into the New Testament, of course, all this pictures Christ on Passover dying, you know, being stricken, smitten for us. And then the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost and filling the believers And then they were able to speak in other languages and Gentiles came into the flock and the church was born and the church is primarily Gentile. So I would say that typologically Jethro would picture, he would picture the Gentiles coming to faith in the true God. And how do, how did originally Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ? It was through the testimony of Jewish believers, just like he came Through the witness of Moses, a Jew, they came initially through the apostles who were all Jews. And then it's very interesting, too, that the last time we hear about Jethro is in Judges 1, verse 15, uh, 16, excuse me. And we learn, and this is really interesting. Where did Jethro live? What land? Midian. Well, the last time we hear his name, we find out that his descendants are not living in Midian. Guess where they're living? They're living in the land of Israel. So that's interesting. So if I had a guess, I would say that Jethro really did get saved. All right, now with the arrival of his family after their separation, you would think, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think that Moses might at least take a little time off to be with his wife and his children? Not so. Typical man. Hmm? He went to work the the next day, the very next day. He probably stayed up all night talking to his father-in-law and the other men and telling him the whole story about everything that had happened. And the first thing in the morning, he gets up at sunrise and he goes straight to work. Hmm. And he he has to help his people with their issues in which they needed God's counsel through him. To this point in time, and they've been in the wilderness three months now, and so to this point in time, Moses 
has handled every single dilemma, decision, and or dispute that the Israelites faced. They come to him with every issue. If they have an argument with somebody else or they don't know how to solve a problem or they need counsel personally or whatever it is, they come to him. So not only did he serve as their deliverer, but he has now, he's now their shepherd and he's their intercessor and he is their judge. And as a result, just like was true with his arms in chapter 17, here as a result, he is in danger of wearing himself out totally this is the burden of a one-man show and it's not good it's just like jethro said it is not good he he was it's not good for him and it wasn't good for the people either it was wearing the people out because they had to stand in line before moses you know he's sitting at the gate of his tent or whatever i don't know the door of his tent wherever he's sitting and they have to stand in line to see him to present him with whatever their issue is. And how long is the line? Two million people. You thought the lines at Walmart were bad? And they didn't even have a self-checkout, you know? (laughs) It says that they stood there in line. Now remember, where are they? They're in the wilderness. They're in the hot desert. And they're standing there from morning to evening, waiting their turn to see him. It's, It's just... So, you know, and these are not known to be patient people. So I am sure that many of them, there are probably many arguments in the line, too. You cut in, I can see arguments going. And I would think that many of those people would be tempted to take justice into their own hand. You know, I'm not going to wait forever. I'm just going to go deal with this on my own. Forget it. So it wasn't good for him, Moses. It wasn't good for the people. Now, there were elders. There were elders over each of the tribes. But evidently, for some reason, they were not being utilized to settle judicial matters among their own tribes people. Verse 16 makes it clear to us that there was a basic code of ethics or laws that Moses was using to make his judgments because it says he spoke about the statutes of God and his laws. It would be impossible for two million people to travel and live together if there were no codes and laws and rules and regulations to govern over them. Did they have rules and law? Did, did Moses know when he killed the Egyptian that it was wrong to murder? Did the Egyptians know it was wrong to murder? Did the Israelites know it was wrong? Yeah, so there were codes and laws before the law. You know, this is all before the law because they haven't gotten the law yet. They're about to from Sinai, from God. But um, we know as far back as Genesis 26, 5, the Lord had blessed Abraham for having obeyed his commandments and his statutes and his laws. So we know that God had not only revealed to man his will in general, he wrote his law in the heart, didn't he? I mean, our conscience tells us what certainly is wrong to lie and all that kind of stuff. So he had revealed his will in a general sense, but he also had revealed his will in some specific ordinances long before he gave the written law on Sinai. A society without any judicial codes and laws will end in total anarchy, period. You have to have rules. You have to have boundaries. A justice system is absolutely mandatory for any kind of order. 
Otherwise, you know, you just would have total chaos. Like at the end of the book of Judges, every man doing that which is right in his own sight. So you have to have laws for order, for security, and for stability. Also, people who know the laws and who properly interpret them and honestly interpret those laws are also vital for times when there are disputes and when there are questions about, well, how, how are we supposed to uphold this law or this code? What exactly? Is he right or am I right? You know, and there, well, you have to have people know the law and are honest to interpret it correctly. Later on in Israel's history, this task would be given to the priests. But as yet, there is no priesthood. This is before the priesthood. Now, by the time of Ezra, this would be after the Babylonian captivity, Ezra had been a priest in captivity in Babylon, and then he left Babylon with a remnant of Israelites to return to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, Ezra was a godly man, a priest. Well, at that time, the task of interpreting the laws and studying the law, to begin with the Torah, studying it and then interpreting it, that task was given over to the scribes. The scribes were like lawyers. Now, unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, many of the scribes or lawyers had been corrupted. Uh, You always hear them called hypocrites, don't you? With Jesus saying, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And they were um, misinterpreting, sometimes purposely, sometimes just out of ignorance, the laws. And they weren't being really honest about interpretation. But anyway, they were like the lawyers. In, uh, and I don't mean by that, I'm not putting down lawyers, but that's what their job was, to interpret the law. Now, in Exodus 18, Moses was himself. Now, this is all pre-priesthood and pre-scribes. He's doing everything himself, single-handedly. And it is not a healthy situation. For anyone, for him or for Israel. Well, who is watching all of this? Who had just come to town <laughs> to Rephidim? Okay, his father-in-law, uh, Jethro, is watching Moses fulfilling his role as sole arbiter for two million people. He sees that line, you know, whoo, it just keeps going forever. And he is watching all this, and he very wisely addresses the situation with his son-in-law. And kindly, but bluntly, he tells him the thing that you're doing is not good. And then he goes on to say that the way Moses was governing justice was doomed to wear him out, and also his people. And later on, we find that Moses confesses. This is after the new system is, that is suggested by Jethro here is implemented so that Moses does have a lot of help. And even then, we read, and this is in, it's in Numbers eleven fourteen. Moses still confesses, even after he has all the helpers, he still confesses that his job is very, very heavy for him. So you can imagine what it was before he had all the helpers. It's just impossible. It was totally overwhelming. And Jethro observed all of this. So is it any wonder that Moses hadn't sent for his family before this? He didn't have time for his family, did he? And that's not healthy. He had no time for anything but ministry. And so what Jethro told him was true. It was not good. Moses could barely keep his head above water. Are you involved in a ministry? Do you feel like your yoke is easy or is your burden heavy? If your burden is heavy, Jesus said that something's wrong. His, his yoke is, is light. His burden, what is, how's it go? Easy. Yeah, <laughs> easy and light. It should be. But it wasn't for Moses. 
And so that should, and if it isn't for you, whatever ministry you're involved in, if it isn't, something is wrong. So you need to listen up to Jethro's advice here. Moses was, he was in trouble. He was so entrenched in his work. He had no time for anything else. He was unable to manage his ministry because he did not realize his ministry needed management. An essential part of leadership is management, administration. And that includes the critical, critical, critical ability to delegate, to get others to help in the many facets of leadership. There's to be a delicate balance between one's a person involved in ministry. There's to be this delicate balance between their public service, and their private life. And that's a battle that we face, isn't it? Especially when there's small children in the family, or especially if you have nine grandchildren. <laughs> it's, it's a balance. It's always a balancing act. Some of you have Judy. I'm looking at Judy. You have How many grandchildren do you have, Judy? 20 what? 22. Whoa. See the balancing act? I mean, that's, how can you even remember all the birthdays? <laughs> Oh, man. Anyway, it is. It's a balancing act. And, and a lot of men especially fail, fail in this area. You know, they're all involved in ministry or in their work, and they're not spending as time that they should with their family. That was Moses' problem here. He wasn't spending time for himself either. A person's public duty should not overshadow his personal responsibility. And that's why a very important prerequisite for Christian leaders is that they must manage their own family first. You know, if you read about it in 1 Timothy 3, 4, it says, before you pick a leader for the church, make sure he's one who manages his family well, that his children are in submission. If he can't manage his own family, how's he going to manage the church body or be a help in the church body? That's an important prerequisite. Now, of course, I know once there the children are out of the home, you lose kind of, you lose the, uh, well, you don't lose the authority, but, uh, you know, they're on their own. They have free will and all that. But while they're still in the home, they should be good kids, right? They should be. <laughs> now, Moses had the wrong idea that every request that was made by one of his sheep, that every request made of him needed to be answered by him, that it was his responsibility. And so we, we see this when Jethro asked him, why do you sit in judgment all day alone? Here's Moses' answer. He says, and this is in 15 and 16, he says, because the people come unto me. The people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a matter, he says, they come unto me. So he was feeling responsible for every single person who came to him with some kind of a need. And what he was doing was burning his candle at both ends, trying to fulfill that self-imposed responsibility. Did you ever hear God say that that was his responsibility at the burning bush? Did he ever tell him that? You have to answer every problem of two million people? No, he just said, you know, lead him out of Egypt, exactly. He wasn't really leading. Moses, at this point, was not really leading. And that may shock you, but for a leader, a true leader, uh, to not delegate responsibility of the multifaceted aspects of ministry to others is to fail in leadership. In other words, a true leader does know how to delegate the workload. To fail to include other godly well-qualified people in meeting the needs of the Lord's people is not good. If you have a church and it's a one-man show and he's doing everything, that's not good. It's not good for him. It's not good for his family. 
is not good for his flock. Now, because Moses was divinely called to lead Israel. He assumed that he was to deal with every individual situation one at a time. And that was a yoke too heavy for not only him, but any human. Nobody can handle that. It's too much to bear. Doesn't God tell us he doesn't give us more than we can handle, more than we can bear? Moses could not be in control of his ministry, his ministry for the Lord. He couldn't be in control of that ministry to lead his people when he wasn't even in control of his own life and his own family. From dawn to dusk, he was a captive. He was held captive to the multitudes who wanted his counsel. So Jethro was urging him, to exercise leadership by getting back control of his own life so he could then effectively lead the nation. Are you following me? And are are you thinking about your own life, your own church, your ministry, your husband's ministry? I don't know, but we should, you know, apply this to ourselves today. Moses was known for his meekness. We're told that in numbers. Uh, So we know that he was truly a servant. He had a servant's heart. He's a picture of Christ. He truly had compassion for his people. He was concerned for them, and he wanted to help them. But God did not call him to be their 24-7 servant. Believers have only one master, right? No man can serve two masters. There's only one we are going to stand before to give account of the stewardship responsibilities that he has given to each of us what did you do with the gifts and the talents and the education and the experience and and the time and the opportunities that I gave to you who do we give account to God not to people not to man we give account to him and him alone if we are busy pleasing and serving men we are likely going to fail to please god the right balance is to be servant-hearted to really care about people to love people to be compassionate about the sheep to be no respecter of persons to not be high-minded proud to not be covetous all those kind of things to be to be servant-hearted and yet also to be very cautious about those who will try to dictate how we manage our stewardship responsibilities. Beware of that, because people will try, not always intentionally, but people will try to pull leaders, those involved in ministries, off track. And they'll do this, I'm just going to give you two examples, there's many others, But one thing that they will do is not respect their time. And another thing is that they will try to get them distracted with priorities that are outside of their specific calling. Do you know what your calling is? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know what the Lord wants you to do to redeem your time wisely for him? You should know that. Other people usually will tell you what that is. Over the years, I've figured it out that mine is to study and to teach. And so, you know, you need to focus on that that one ministry but people will try to ask you to do this and to do that and then you'll feel guilty because well i'm not serving in the nursery i'm not in the choir i should be doing this i should be doing that ministry and all that. but if you do that if you're going 10 directions you're not going to be effective in any one of them are you that's true and i'm not to say you know saying you can't sign up to serve once in a while in the nursery and etc etc But people will try to get you going too many directions, and you've got to keep your priorities straight. You have to know what God called you specifically to do and spend your time and energy there. Also allowing for time with your family. Very important, especially as mothers. 
and grandmothers and aunts, etc. It is vital for spiritual leaders of God's people to establish priorities in accordance with their ministry calling and then stick to them. Moses was to oversee everything that was happening in the camp, but he was not to single-handedly take care of everything that was happening in the camp. He was to deal with the serious issues, but he was to guard against being consumed with all of the lesser issues. He had actually slipped into the role of becoming Israel's problem solver. He was functioning more as a referee than he was as a shepherd. And so his father-in-law wisely suggests that he rearrange his schedule. Jethro understood that Moses's priority was to teach others. This is what we read in verses 19 and 20. He was to teach others the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. His top priority was to seek the mind of God and then teach others the detail, you know, teach others so that they would carry out the details of God's will in matters of justice and counsel. Jethro then also very wisely included the character qualifications that Moses should look for in calling those who would assist him in the work of the ministry. He said that they were to be able men. In other words, they were to have the skills and the experience and the intellect to handle the job to which they were being asked to to take on. So if you want somebody to help you in administrative work, you know, you find one with those skills. You find somebody who's been involved in banking, Terry Doby here. To handle the finances. You wouldn't want me handling the finance. So you find people who are able to do the tasks to which you're going to assign them. And then also they are to be God-fearing. That is very important. Very important in ministry. <laughs> you want someone who fears, reverentially fears God. Knows God and, and wants to serve God. And if he's a God-fearing person or she is, they will also be honest. That's the next qualification. Because if you fear God, you're going to be honest before God, aren't you? And you're going to be honest with your fellow man. Also, they are to be free from covetousness. That means that they're not going to be easily seduced by offers of bribery. Here, I've got this dispute with my neighbor. Here, I'll give you $1,000 if you'll decide on my side. You know, no quid pro quo. In other words... I'll do this for you if you do this for me. None of that going on. Wouldn't that be refreshing? And those who fit these qualifications could be trusted to help in the daily governing of the people. So the suggestion of Jethro was very good. So this was good. You know, sometimes it's good to listen to your (laughs) in-laws. It was so funny because we had a girl yesterday who had her mother-in-law had driven all the way from the east, uh, north, where? Lake Waccamaw, to come to the Bible study. Because she had heard about the Bible study and she wanted to attend. And then after hearing the message, she said, you invited me on purpose because she talked about mother-in-laws. <laughs> but it was a good thing because I talked about, you know, your mother-in-law can give you good advice sometimes, right? <laughs> Listen to those who are trying, humbly, godly people trying to give you. Now, Jethro did this in a very humble, gracious way, and I'm so glad to report that Moses listened to him. That was good. I believe with all my heart 
that this man was sovereignly sent by God himself at this time in Moses's life to save him from burning himself out because this is just the beginning of 40 years. Can you imagine if he if he kept trying to do everything by himself after 40 years, he would not have made it to 120 years of age. He would have worn out long before. So the plan, now Jethro shares with him the plan. Here, I've got a plan for you, Moses. Organize this large camp of Israelites in such a manner that every 10 people have someone that they can go to to present their issue. Every 10 people will know someone, you know, intimately. And they can go to that person, that ruler, a 10-person ruler. Well, if that 10-person ruler cannot solve the situation, then the next you would do is sequentially go to a 50-person ruler... If he can't solve the situation, you go to a hundred-person ruler. If he can't solve the situation, you go to what's next? A 1,000-person ruler. Now, if it's still whatever that problem or situation is or wanting to know God's will about something, if it still can't be answered or resolved, only then was it to be referred to Moses. And so this plan ensured much, much shorter waiting line. And it freed up Moses so that he could focus on his own devotional life. He could focus on his family. That's the name of the focus on the family, right? Um, And he could focus on his writings. He did not need to be spending his time and energy on situations and consultations that other people could handle. God had chosen him to be Israel's leader, but he didn't mean for him to do everything himself. I could never handle this ministry by myself. Never, ever, ever. Without so many of you who help in different ways between the two ministries. We've got lots of women. I couldn't do it by myself. And if I tried to, I'd be no good to anybody, right? I'd be really good for nothing. (laughs) So God, you know, all throughout the wilderness, God is providing, isn't he? He's providing everything for his people. And now he's even providing for their leader. He's provided. So chapter 18 is about his provision for Moses. And that includes giving him support in the ministry. He did not want him to grow weary in well-doing. Well, Jethro was wise not to command You notice he doesn't command his son-in-law to carry out the new administrative plan that he has. He doesn't say, you need to do this or else. Now, if you are a mother-in-law, don't do that (laughs) with your daughter-in-law or your son-in-laws. Here's what you do. You do what Jethro did. He's a very wise man. He made the suggestion. He didn't command him. And he did it very humbly. And very kindly, he was blunt. He said, what you're doing isn't good. But let me suggest this to you. And he did it in an in a amicable way. And you do that with your husbands, you know, and your daughter-in-laws, even your own kids. You make a suggestion. And then later on when they come back to you and they say, hey, how about this? And it's this thing you suggested. You say, oh. That's such a good idea. How did you come up with that? But then he also, not only did he make it as a suggestion, but he urged Moses to go and talk to God about it. You talking to your husband or your daughter-in-law, say, here's my suggestion, but you know what you really need to do is pray to the Lord and then do what he tells you to do. 
That was so wise. Well, interestingly, the advice given to Moses by Jethro is very, very possibly directly connected to the fact that we have the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Think about that. God used the counsel of this Midianite man to lighten up Moses's busy schedule so that he had time to do what? To write. If it had not been for Jethro's counsel here, Moses would have been consumed his entire life with all this self-imposed judicial and civil work, and he would never have had time to write one book, much less five, would he? So we can say, thank you, Jethro, for your advice, or we wouldn't be studying the book of Exodus today. Well, in Deuteronomy 1, verses 12 to 18, we are told that Moses did carry out this plan from his father-in-law, and he carried it out. In a gracious, humble way, he made a selection of judges who are also later on called chiefs, wise men, and captains. He selected all these people, these men, to to help him in the work. And we know, we can trust that his appointments were guided by, by the Lord himself. So on the heels of all the murmuring and the complaining and the accusations that Israel had been hurling at Moses and subsequently at the Lord, isn't it refreshing to come to a chapter that describes something more positive about Israel's wilderness journey? You know, it's a relief to learn that it included times of praising God and uh, offering sacrifices to God and fellowshipping, breaking bread with other believers. it's, It's refreshing to know that the wilderness journey included times of enjoying family, And going about just daily life. You know, our wilderness journey on our way to the promised land of heaven definitely has its trials, doesn't it? Definitely has its trials. But it isn't always only about hunger and thirst and trials and battles with enemies. It's also packed with many blessings, isn't it? Isn't this a blessing to be here together this morning? It is. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, and this is sad, but it's true. He said, God's people are more prone to engrave their trials and their troubles in marble while writing their blessings in sand. Mm, That's not good. We should do it absolutely the flip. We should engrave our blessings in marble. Let's say granite. (laughs) Engrave our blessings in granite and our trials and troubles in sand because they're fleeting. They won't be forever. Will they? Well, when the, we're going to get to chapter 19 now, so let me read the first 10 verses. In the third month of chapter 19, I'm reading verse 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day, that means basically the first day of the third month, came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, And were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. What mount? Where are they? They're in the wilderness of Sinai. They're camped now at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it took them three months to get there. Basically, not quite three months. And Moses went up unto God, top of the mount, 
And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Now here's what he's supposed to tell the children of Israel. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will keep, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, what covenant? What covenant? The one he's about to give, Mount Sinai, a mosaic covenant. He says, and they haven't heard it yet, but he says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which you shall, thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. <clears throat> so Moses goes down the mountain and he comes and he calls for the elders of the people and lays before their faces. That means face to face. He tells them all the words which the Lord had just commanded him there in verses four to six. And all the people, apparently the elders told the people because then the people answered together and said what? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How do you know? You haven't heard it yet. <laughs> and Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now we know Moses is really feeling his Wheaties because he goes up and down this mountain a whole bunch of times. He's not weary anymore because he doesn't have people standing in line before. <laughs> and the Lord said unto Moses, verse 9, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. That's amazing. He's going to speak directly to the people, not just speak directly to Moses. The people are going to hear what he says to Moses. And therefore, from then on, they will believe Moses, that he really heard the voice of God and is giving them the words of God. Get it? They're going to hear the, the voice of God himself. <clears throat> and so Moses goes back down the mountain and tells the words of the, uh, of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, oh, no, that's, that's for next time. That's for next year. We'll start verse 10 next year. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Can you believe it's going to be 2020 already? 2020? What? Logician? Oh, vision. <laughs> oh, 2020. Oh, I get it. Yeah, 2020 vision. Yeah, I used to, I used to have 2020 vision. <sighs> so um, that's right. We'll have to remember that. 20, maybe that'll be the year of the vision of the Lord returning. Oh, so on the heels of all the murmurs and everything, now we come to this, uh, the God carrying out his promise. Remember when Moses stood before God at the burning bush? He stood before the great I am that I am, and he first received his commission to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. And at that time, of course, he was really reluctant about it. He did not really want to do it. Remember, he gave all kinds of excuses, but he finally consented because the Lord said to him, to Moses, Moses, I'm not going to have you do this on your own. You really think I'm going to send you all by yourself to do this? He said in verse 3, 12, certainly I will be with thee. And was God with Moses every step of the way? Did Moses deliver Egypt? No, God delivered Egypt through Moses. So he said, certainly I'll be with me. And then he said, I'll give you a token. I'll give you a sign to prove that your mission is going to be successful. You will deliver Israel out of Egypt. And here's the token. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve me on this mountain right here. Same mountain where he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. So that's where they're now. Now 
The token is answered, isn't it? It's fulfilled. Because where is Moses with all the delivered people? He's at that mountain, that very same mountain, that same Mount Sinai where he had seen God. There's God spoke to him through the burning bush. Um, leaving Rephidim and that great supply of fresh water from the stricken rock of Horeb, Israel entered into the wilderness of Sinai and they were now camped before the mount. He's standing with the redeemed people at the foot of that very same mountain. So the Lord kept his promise. Does he keep his promises? Does he keep every single one of his promises? Yes. So it's time now for the delivered people, the redeemed people, to serve God. You know, he had not given them their freedom so that they could be irresponsible, boundary-free, comfortable in their safe spaces, and self-indulgent. And isn't that how many in our culture view freedom today? They do. Give me my safe space. I don't want any boundaries. I don't want any rules. That's true freedom, to do whatever I want to do. Well, that's not really true freedom. He had not set them free for all of that. He had set them free because uh, he had a purpose for them. If Israel continued in her new freedom without maturity of faith in him, which he is trying to develop by giving her all these tests along the way, that's why he gives her these tests, so that she'll come to you know, mature faith, know that she can trust in him. And if he gave her her freedom without boundaries on her behavior, which is what he will give her with the law, the Torah, then she would wind up in worse bondage than when she was in Egypt under Pharaoh. And that what happened to so many young people out here in the world? You give them freedom, I mean, you know, no boundaries, no rules, no punishment for when they do something wrong and they wind up in worse bondage than without it. And they're in bondage to, just like Israel, she was becoming her own worst enemy. She was, she was getting into bondage to her fears and to her emotions and to her doubts. She was becoming her own worst enemy. <clears throat> she was, do people get enslaved to their emotions and to their feelings and their doubts and their fears? Do they get enslaved to bitterness and complaining spirits? Yes. So without the Lord's intervention at Sinai, she would have become exactly like all of the other nations of the world, and eventually she would have turned to the worship of other gods. When she's already having a problem with that anyway. She's carrying, we'll find out, she's carrying a lot of gods and goddesses with her on the way. And when he comes down with the Ten Commandments, what is she doing? Worshiping a golden calf. So we know she would have become just like the other nations of the world without the law. On at least eight occasions, Moses had asked Pharaoh for permission to take his people into the wilderness so that they might do what? Worship their God. And he had always, you know, refused until that last time. God had to intervene. So guess what? Now she is in the wilderness. And she is free. And she is now able to worship and serve her God. But she needs to know from him, from God, how to serve and worship him. She doesn't really know. She knows how to serve the world and Pharaoh, but she doesn't really know yet how to serve and worship God. She is going to be encamped at Mount Sinai for 11 months, almost a year they will be there. 
And we know that this is a very significant time in Israel's history because there are more than 57 chapters in Scripture devoted to those 11 months when Israel stood at the mount, the foot of the Mount of Sinai. 57 chapters, that's a lot of chapters. Well, so in verse 3, he goes, Moses goes up the mountain. He very likely, remember he lived in this area for 40 years. He tended to sheep here, 40 years. He knows, he knows this area. He re- probably remembered vividly, it would never leave his mind, where he had met God through the burning bush. I think he went right to that same spot, don't you? Now, we're not told the bush was on fire. This time, God speaks to him from heaven. But he goes up there, and this time the Lord tells him that what he was going to hear from him, from the Lord, he is to go down and instruct the people. He's to to share what he hears with the people, the house of Jacob. Now, God's introductory words to Israel through Moses are in verses 4 to 6. And in those verses, he unveils his purpose for having set her free. He begins by reminding his people what he had done for them. What had he done for them? Well, he destroyed the Egyptians. He set them free from Egypt. He utterly defeated Pharaoh. Why? Because he just wanted to get rid of Pharaoh? No, because Pharaoh was a stubborn man and would not let his people go, so he had to destroy him, and uh, he would have just kept chasing Israel, wouldn't he? And so he had to destroy him, but the reason he did it is because he had a very distinct purpose for his people. He had a distinct purpose for the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham and the house of Jacob. And they needed to be free in order to fulfill that purpose. She was, he tells her through Moses, to obey his voice and keep his covenant. And uh, he wants that so he can mature her into a holy nation, a nation set apart, sanctified for him, a nation that would live in such a different way, such a holy, godly way, that she would be a light to the world, a light to lighten the Gentiles, right? And to to glorify him. That's his purpose. She's to serve him as a kingdom of priests. She's to intercede between the world and God, you know? And she is to uh, reveal him and his truth to the nations of the world as his peculiar treasure. Did she succeed? No. (laughs) She failed him in many, many ways. Didn't she? She really did. By the time of Jesus, she's no light at all to anybody, not even to herself. She was snobby, you know, looked down her nose at Gentiles. Sad, but one thing he made sure of is that she did reveal him to the world in two ways, through his written word. How did we get the Bible? Through Jews. And how did we receive the living word, his son? Through Israel. So that's not credit to them, is it? (laughs) It's credit to God because he did fulfill that role for them. And, of course, it was Jewish believers who initially shared the gospel message with, um, with Gentiles about Jesus Christ. In verse 4, now, the Lord, I'm almost done, the Lord uses a beautiful image to explain his plan to mature Israel while also protecting her with his hovering 
utmost care. He's going to mature her, but he's also going to be there to watch over her and protect her and keep care, keep, take care of her. He says, I bear you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. Later on, Moses, in writing a song in Deuteronomy, says something very similar about the Lord's care for Israel. He says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, he, the Lord, spread his wings and caught them, and he carried them on his pinions. Remember when Israel had questioned at the end of our lesson last time, he had, they had questioned God's presence with them? They had said, is the Lord among us or not? Wasn't that an awful question to ask after all he had done for them? And he was there with them. I mean, they could see him in the cloud and the pillar of fire and all that. He was with them every step of the way. And yet, you know, that, that question was foolish because it was born out of disbelief. The answer to it is that, of course, he had been with them. He was present with them every step of the way. Like the parent eagle, the Lord was at work intentionally stirring up the nest for Israel's own good. You see, what he was doing, just like the parent eagle, is that he was forcing the Israelites to try their wings Eagles have a lot. You know, nature out there has a lot to teach us, doesn't it? Just look at the ants, look at the bees, look at all kinds. Everything in nature has some message to speak to us about God, the creator. Well, the eagles have a lot to teach us about the maturity process God uses with his children. You see, when it is exactly the right time to do so, the parent eagles will purposely break up the nest of their young in order to force the little eaglets to learn to fly. You know, if you have a 36-year-old still living at home, it might be time to push him out of the nest. (laughs) Now, the little ones, the eaglets, are very anxious. They don't really want to leave the security of the nest, do they? Because that's the only home that they have ever known. And they've been fed, you know, they've been provided for, and they don't have any need. They don't see any need to get out. And they're anxious. Um, Israel, when she got out of the nest of Egypt, she's, she's anxious, isn't she? And what does she keep doing? She keeps looking back at the nest. She keeps looking back at it. Every time she has a new trial in the wilderness, she says, oh, we shouldn't have ever left the nest. We had plenty of worms and onions and leeks in the nest. (laughs) You see, none of her people were old enough to have remembered life outside of Egypt. That was the only home they ever knew. They'd been there for centuries. And so they're anxious about the unknown. They don't, you know, the wilderness is full of unknowns. They're anxious about their future in the wilderness. And what they kept forgetting is that just like the adult eagles, God was there watching. Do you think when they kick the little eaglets out of the nest that that mommy and daddy eagle just fly away into the sunset? No, where are they? On a nearby branch watching, aren't they? Same thing was true with God. He was watching and caring for her, even when she thought, he left us, we're all alone, we're alone and forsaken, we're by ourselves. He was trying to mature her faith in him. As 
he did with all the tests. And every time she faltered, what did he do? You know, she thought she was going to perish. The little baby eaglets, you know, their wings aren't quite doing it, and they start to fall. And what does Mama Eagle come doing? She swoops that little eaglet on her long, strong wings. That's exactly what God was doing. Every time she thought she was about to perish, he comes swooping down to rescue her. He bore her on strong eagle's wings, showing her his power and his protection. Isn't that a beautiful example? I just love that. Um, He was trying to teach her she could enjoy her new freedom. You know, when those eaglets are on the mama's wings, she is teaching them how to ride the currents how to weather the storms and to use their abilities that God has given them to go on their own, right? That's what he's doing. That's what he's trying to do. Well, verse 7, we learn that Moses goes down the mountain. He calls together the elders. He shares with them the words that God had spoken to him about the purpose. He wants to make them a holy nation, a peculiar treasure unto him, etc. And so the Evidently, the elders share that with the people, and the people answer, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, they seem sincere, don't they? This sounds good. Okay, we're going to do it. But their response here is based on total ignorance. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we'll do it. You have kids that do that? Yeah, Mom, I'll do it. They don't even know what the assignment is yet. And that's the, the case here. They have not yet even heard the words or the terms of God's covenant. And yet they say, yeah, we'll do it. Um, Later on, when they do hear it, guess what? They say the same thing. Right after they hear it, this is in 24.3, they again say all the words that the Lord hath said, we will do. Oh, my. They did not have a clue, did they? (laughs) Again, I think they were sincere, but they had no idea how far short they would fall from obeying all the law can anyone obey the law can any one of us even obey the ten commandments how about just one of the ten commandments (laughs) like covetousness try that for your whole life or not putting any other gods before i mean it's just you know we can't it's impossible they could never obey all the words of the lord's law The law wasn't designed or intended to save Israel from their sins or anyone else from their sins. It was given so that people would realize their sins, right? The law reveals the sinfulness of the heart in all of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. There was only one who could ever fulfill the law, and that was Christ. The law exposes our depravity to ourselves. So that we understand our spiritual poverty, that we are without Christ, we are hopeless and helpless. The law draws us to Christ. The law, when you understand the law, you understand, I can't meet it. I need a savior or I'm doomed to die in my sins. Paul said the law was like a schoolmaster. In Galatians, he said the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. There are some other reasons for the law. It revealed God's holy character for one. It set the nation of Israel apart as distinct from other nations. The law prevented Israel from amalgamating with the other nations. She had dietary rules. She had rules about this and rules about that, rules about leprosy, rules about everything. 
613 do's and don'ts in addition to the Ten Commandments. That kept her separate, didn't it? Putting no other gods before her was supposed to keep her separate as a nation so that she wouldn't intermarry and, you know, stay his people. Also, it provided a way of forgiveness um, through the sin substitutionary sacrifices of those who had genuine faith in God and his promise of a coming Savior. Now, those sacrifices did not save them. Their faith saved them. When they offered a sacrifice with a heart, faith in God, and his promised Savior, they were, they were forgiven of their sins in anticipation of the day when the Savior would come and fully atone for their sins. You get it? The sacrifices were just uh, fill-ins. <laughs> they were pictures pointing to him. But a person who offered the sacrifices with genuine faith was a saved person. The law also provided a way for, uh, of worship. You know, they learned how God wanted them to worship him uh, through the yearly feast days that he would give them and through the tabernacle system that he would give, uh, tell them to build and everything and all the different sacrifices and offerings. Also, the law provided God's direction for the physical and spiritual health of the people. You know, the Israelites were a lot healthier than the rest of the world. Because of the dietary laws and other things he told them about what to eat and what not to eat and how to handle leprosy and all that. Gave them a lot of scientific truths way ahead. They were way advanced of the other people. Well, when we read about the fractured history of Israel in scripture, we find that they repeatedly broke the conditions of this covenant with God by their disobedience. This was a conditional, a conditional covenant. In other words, God says... If you obey and if you keep, I will do this. That's called conditional. Both, both, parts, both parties had responsibilities to each other. Um, <clears throat> and they, complete, they always broke their end of it. They couldn't keep his commandments, his, vo- his covenant. And yet in his infinite grace, he never rejected them. He never rejected them. Even though he had to punish her, he had to chasten her, he never has and he never will renege on his unconditional promises of the Abrahamic covenant that she will one day, you know, bless all the other nations of the world, that the Messiah will return and sit in Jerusalem, that she will have all the land. There's all these different aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. Those will be fulfilled. Those were unconditional. Israel had to do nothing, and he will fulfill those. But we know that she has had to be set aside for a period of time. Why? Because of her ultimate sin in rejecting her own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's son. She had to be set aside. Uh, One day, all God's promises to her will be fulfilled after she goes through seven years of a fiery furnace and the tribulation and then the Lord returns. She looks on him whom she pierced. She recognizes finally who Jesus Christ is. She repents and she gets saved. And then all God's promises to her will be fulfilled. But in the meanwhile, who is his peculiar people? <laughs> Look at your neighbor. <laughs> who is his peculiar treasure? We are, aren't we? I love that word. I'm a peculiar person. 
<laughs> I'm God's peculiar treasure, and you are too if you're part of his church, the body of Christ. We are his holy nation. We are a royal priesthood in the meantime, aren't we? Until he comes and receives us to himself. After the gathered Israelites promised that they would do everything the Lord told him, Moses went back up the mountain. This guy's really getting his exercise, isn't he? And the Lord tells him his agenda. This is exciting. This is how we're going to start out 2020, our new year of vision. <laughs> That's a good thing to call it, the new year of vision. He tells him what he's going to do. He's going to appear before Moses and the people in a thick cloud. Now, we know that when he comes down in a thick cloud, it's accompanied with thunders and lightnings and earthquake and shaking, and the people are fearful, and it's really scary because God comes down to meet his people. And he says that when he speaks this time to Moses, all the people are going to hear his voice, and then they would believe Moses forever. Does Israel still to this day honor and respect Moses as a prophet of God? Absolutely. They don't with Jesus, but they do with Moses. But the exciting thing is that there, and he tells them, he goes down the mountain, he says, you're going to meet God. So prepare. So they have three days that they are to prepare to sanctify themselves, to get ready to meet God. Many mighty things will happen on that day, three days hence. Many wonderful things. Um, but the greatest would be that the people would hear God's words directly from him. Moses said this in uh, Deuteronomy. He said, did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire? Because it came down, you know, with thick cloud and fire and lightning and all that. Did anybody ever hear from God through the midst of fire as thou hast heard? Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk to man. God talks to man. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have? That's what he says to the people later on. He says, can you believe we actually all, not only did I get to hear God from the burning bush, but you all got to hear God speak. Wouldn't that be wonderful to hear God speak from heaven? But you know what? We have something even better, don't we? We have the word of God. He does speak to us directly, doesn't he? In 66 books of the scripture, we have something much greater than they had. They just had a one time, you know, hear the voice of God. We have the full revelation of everything God wants to say to man at this point in time. And we are surely blessed. Has anybody been as blessed as us? We could say the same thing that Moses did. Well, what's exciting, and I'll also share this when you come back next year, bring a friend. We're going to talk about how this, do you know that the day the Lord came down, that third day after they got there at the foot of Mount Sinai, that third day he came down is the day to this day that the Jewish people, the Hebrews, celebrate the Feast of Sukkoth. Or it's also called the Feast of Weeks. And we call it Pentecost. And they celebrate that as the unofficial birth of Israel. What happened that day? God came down. There was fire. There were voices speaking to the people. What happened in Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church? Holy Spirit came down. 
tongues of fire, people speaking in voices, Gentile languages, so everyone could understand. The same day as the unofficial birth of Israel is what we celebrate as the birth of the church. So you see the typology picture there? You had the Passover, Christ's death, the crossing, the baptism down at the Red Sea, the coming up the other side, the resurrection. And then you have 50 days later, Pentecost. So all the feasts, the spring feasts of Israel were fulfilled. And they were also pictured to us by Israel and what she went through in the Exodus. Isn't that exciting? It is amazing. All right. (sighs) Totally burned up. But because this is the Christmas season, I wanted to read one poem and then we'll eat. Yay. Um, Christmas, something to do with Christmas since this lesson had nothing to do with it really. But I guess if you talk about Christ, it's all the same. But I wrote this poem back in 1985. Wow, a long time ago. It's called, What Greater Statement of Love? What better place for a lamb to be born, alone in a manger, meek and forlorn? What greater statement of love could God make, coming to serve and to die for our sake? Equal with God, he veiled his crown, stepped out of glory, to Bethlehem town. Grand is the love of the one who made all, coming as flesh to be born in a stall. Humble in birth, even more so in death, came the same one who gave life with his breath. Laid on the the wood of a manger was he, so also to be nailed to the wood of a tree. Having all gifts to the fullest degree, yet he did purpose to face Calvary. Having the power to crush every foe, yet he did purpose to face Satan's blow. He came for a reason which he carried through. He did it for me, and he did it for you. A once-for-all sacrifice to pay for our sin, God's holy of holies, we now can step in. The lamb, white and spotless, now sits at God's right for saints interceding all day and all night. How much we should praise him for all he has done. How blessed are those who believe on God's son. And blessed are we who await his return, looking toward heaven with hearts that do yearn. To hear the trump sound and be raised in a flash, Leaving this world where our values so clash. Thank God for the lamb who was long ago born alone in a manger with straw to adorn. And oh, for the love of the one who made all coming as flesh to be born in a stall. What greater statement of love could God make coming to serve and to die for our sake? Amen.